When I was a kid, one of my favorite shows was Dragnet. Remember that show? Yeah. <laughs> it's about a dedicated police detective in the city of Los Angeles by the name of Sergeant Joe Friday. What a name. And, of course, you might remember his partner, Officer Bill Gannon, because Gannon was played by Harry Morgan, who is also uh, Dr. Potter, Colonel Potter, uh, on MASH. But Dragnet always started with the announcer saying, as that dramatic organ and music was coming on, ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. And then the music again, and you'd hear Joe Friday's voice, this is the city, Los Angeles, California. I work here. I carry a badge. Now, when the detectives were interviewing witnesses who got very talkative and wandered off the, the subject of the crime, Joe Friday would often say, remember this, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Or if he was talking to a, a male, uh, a guy, he would say, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts, just the facts. Uh, it's all about the facts of the case. Nothing else matters. He only wanted the facts. My favorite president of the United States was John Adams. And John Adams said about facts, he said, facts are stubborn things. And whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. But today we live in a different kind of world where facts are made out to be a whole different kind of thing, aren't they? Remember in the presidential election, we heard about alternative facts? You can make up your own facts to suit your own purposes. Within four days of one spokesman using the phrase alternative facts to prove her point, within four days, the sale of George Orwell's book, 1984, increased by 9,500%. Orwell's book depicted a society that was controlled by propaganda, surveillance, misinformation, and the denial of truth. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? With the social media scandals of this last week of how Facebook has had all our personal information stolen and used somehow with, with all the hackers and everyone else, it seems, misusing the information and facts about you, we should be able in this country to determine, understand why facts matter. But, but we live in a place where apparently facts don't matter and people don't understand. At least they don't know how the facts matter until their own identity is stolen or they've been sucked into believing a falsehood that was posted on Facebook. And even then it still doesn't matter to some people. We live in a postmodern world where we have to explain why facts matter. We have to be able to explain why facts, as John Adams said, are stubborn things. And whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. So why do facts matter? Now facts do not matter very much to us if they really pertain to somebody else. If they don't have anything to do with us personally. You hear that someone wins the lottery, and you might read a fact about the, the probability of winning the lottery, but if you don't win the lottery, it doesn't have anything to do with you, right? Especially if you don't even buy lottery tickets. But it is a fact that most people who win the lotteries are in worse shape financially three to five years after winning 
than they were before. It's a fact. According to U.S. News and World Report, studies found that instead of getting people out of financial trouble, winning the lottery got people into more trouble, since bankruptcy rates soared for lottery winners three to five years after winning. Now, you'd probably agree with that fact, because you might have seen something about that. And you might say when you hear that fact, well, you know, that's really a shame. But you kind of forget about it until you see the next person on TV holding that giant check, and, and you wonder, I wonder how it's going to go for him or her. But then you get a phone call from New Jersey. He says you had a rich uncle that you didn't know about, and he left you $2 million. You hang up because you think it's a scam. A few days later, FedEx delivers a package. And in that package, there's a check for $2 million with a letter from a law firm. You take it down to your bank and you find out the check is legit. You have your lawyer go over the paperwork and it's all on the level. Now this fact is different. This piece of news is different, isn't it? The first piece of news about lottery winners was true. You'd even heard about rich uncles before, but you probably and you probably believed it as it pertained to other people. You didn't doubt it. There's good evidence for it. It could probably be proved by the facts. But now, here's a piece of news. Here is a fact that goes to the core of your very being. It shakes you. Your heart is racing. You start wondering what you're going to do with the money. You start trying to figure out where you get trusted advice and counsel on such things. Everything in you comes alive to this reality that it's your money. It touches your existence. It's going to change everything in your life. It will change things in you more deeply than you probably have ever been touched before. Now the facts truly matter. They make a difference in your life. Your life will never be the same. Well, you go, Pastor, that's never going to happen to me. Well, this morning in Romans chapter 4, we're going to see four breathtaking facts about the resurrection from the dead. And we're not talking here about reincarnation or about some kind of escape from the body or about ghosts or spirits or anything like that. We're talking about Christ's body and soul and spirit as a unified whole person coming out of the grave. And someday his people following him in exactly the same way. What if these are true? What if these really are the facts of the case? What if these are more than what you hear on the news before you go on to the next story? What if these facts come alive and they touch you at your very existence and change everything, everything about you? So let's look at the facts of the resurrection from the dead. Please turn once again to the sixth chapter of Romans, the fourth verse. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, page 1385. The first fact is that Christ rose from the dead. Christ rose from the dead. Verse 4 of the 6th chapter of Romans. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. As Christ was raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul states it as a fact. In fact, it was a well-known fact to the believers in Rome to whom Paul was writing at the time. 
So let's, let's just look at its authenticity for a moment. Just look at a few things of literally the dozens of things we could look at to establish this as a fact. How do we know that this miraculous event of the resurrection was not a fabrication of some kind? It wasn't the apostles' imagination, or, or they just didn't make it up as a hoax. Well, one of the things we do know is Jesus appeared first to women, a fact that a hoax would avoid it at all costs. Sorry about this, ladies, but in that day, the oral law restricted what women could say in a court of law. The fact that Jesus had first appeared to women, one by the name of Mary Magdalene, makes the resurrection even more believable in that from the Jewish perspective, the testimony of a woman concerning these kinds of matters would have been immediately rejected. Now, for sure, anyone desiring to create a hoax would have Jesus appearing to a man, never a woman. That's just the way it was. And it was for this reason that Mary Magdalene's testimony concerning Jesus' resurrection was disbelieved by the disciples who were hiding out. When she obeyed the risen Lord and went quickly to tell the disciples that she had seen the Lord, they didn't believe her until they had seen Jesus with their own eyes, and in the case of Thomas, till he had touched him with his own hands. But Jesus' resurrection was anything but make-believe. Turn over to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at the third verse, page 1410, if you're using the Bible in the rack. <clears throat> Here, Paul's words from 1 Corinthians verify the reality of Christ's resurrection. These are the facts, man, just the facts. In fact, in beginning at verse 3 of 1 Corinthians uh, 15, uh, sometimes we call this the gospel in a nutshell. These are the facts of the gospel, beginning at verse 3. For I, re I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. That's the Aramaic name for Peter. He appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. Christ appeared to Peter and then to the rest of the apostles. Incidentally, when, when God healed the lame beggar at the gate beautiful at the hands of Peter and John, and, and Peter had the opportunity to preach and proclaim the gospel, he said to those in the crowd, he says, But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer, but put to death the prince of peace, the one whom God raised from the dead, and then Peter says, a fact of which we were witnesses. Peter and the apostles saw the risen Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse 6 continues. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. That means most of them are still alive, but some of them have died. Now, why did Paul add that part that some of the witnesses of the resurrection are still alive? It's because if you're reading this, you can go check it out for yourself. You can actually go and talk to some of these folks. You don't make up something up and then tell people how they can check it out. They didn't have fact check and those kind of things in those days that, that check all this. Thing. You can go check it out yourself. Go talk to these people. And then he says in verse 7, 
Then he appeared to James. James was the half-brother of Jesus and to all the apostles. And then Paul says, and last of all, as to one untimely born, untimely born again, he appeared to me also. That would have been on the road to Damascus. And we also know from Scripture, we could look at this in Matthew and Mark's gospel that in the book of Acts, that the resurrected Christ appeared to the 11 disciples on an appointed mountain in Galilee. And upon seeing him, the apostles worshiped. But then uh, there's a thing that's kind of odd there, but some of them were doubtful. Even after seeing him, some were still doubtful. Had a hoax or a scam been involved here, the 25 years between Jesus' resurrection and the writing of 1 Corinthians, which was from 30 A.D. to 55 A.D., that 25 years would have been lots of time for some people to recant, to change their story, to do all kinds of things, but their stories remained the same over that 25 years. This fact very much substantiates the reality and the validity of Jesus' resurrection. <clears throat> but we can also look at the facts of history. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Rome in the year 93, 93, about the same time that John received the revelation of Jesus Christ on the island of Patmos, within a year or two there, a man by the name of Josephus published his lengthy history of the Jews. Some of you have probably read Josephus. It's, it's kind of odd reading at first, but then when you get into it, you go, wow, this is good stuff. <laughs> and while Josephus was discussing the period in which the Jews of Judea were governed by a Roman procurator named Pontius Pilate, Josephus included the following account. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, Josephus was Jewish. He wasn't a Christian at all, but he was Jewish. Those amongst us had condemned him to the cross. Those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day. As the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct to this day. Even Josephus is saying, you can go talk to these people in 93 AD. Fact number one, Jesus rose from the dead. Fact number two is in verse 9 of Romans chapter 6. Back to the sixth chapter of Romans. Verse 9, Christ will never die again. He reigns triumphant over death. The sixth verse, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. No, verse 9, actually, I gave you the wrong word. Verse 9, drop down verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. Notice again how Paul begins the verse knowing this, knowing that. This is common factual knowledge among the believers in Rome. The Christian faith is built upon knowledge. It's not a built upon speculation or some ideas that people cooked up somehow. It's built upon facts and it's built upon evidence. 
I like what one biblical scholar said about this. He said, faith is not a leap in the dark, but it's the resting of the mind in the sufficiency of the evidence. Faith is the resting of the mind in the sufficiency of the evidence. So fact number two is based on fact number one. Having been raised from the dead, fact number one, Jesus is never to die again. Fact number two. Now, it's not like when Lazarus came out of the grave, poor Lazarus had to go through death all over again. But Christ's resurrection broke forever the tyranny of death. The cruel master of death can no longer exercise any power over him. The cross was sin's final move. The resurrection was God's checkmate. The game is over. Sin is forever in defeat. Christ the victor died to sin once for all, as, as the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. As our Savior Jesus Christ trod the lowly path of suffering on behalf of doomed sinners, Jesus submitted to the rule of death. But that's all past. Death no longer has any power over him. There, there is no more death for him. Jesus rose triumphant. He entered into the glory of God. He ascended to the right hand of the Father on high. He was King of kings and Lord of lords where he makes intercession for us and where one day we will live with him forever. We sang about that this morning. Up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever ever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. He is risen. Good. <laughs> now, the third fact brings it home. This is where the facts begin to come alive to us. It's where they touch us at the point of our very existence, and they change everything in our lives. We see the third fact in verse 6, or verse 8 of Romans chapter 6, verse 8 of the 6th chapter of Romans. Now, if we have died with Christ, we also believe we will live with him. Fact number three, through faith, through believing, we are united to Christ and die in him. When we trust Christ, we are so identified with him that what happened to Christ happens to us. This is that great truth that Paul also expresses in his letter to the Galatians. If you want to turn over to Galatians chapter 2, the 20th verse, Galatians 2.20. Page 1425, Galatians chapter 2, the 20th verse. This is the key verse in God's word to knowing how to live the Christian life. This is the key verse. It all boils down to this. Having died with Christ, 20th verse of, of Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. Let that sink in for a minute. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 
This is what it means to have died with Christ. It means to have been crucified with him. When Jesus died on the cross, your old self, what the Bible calls the old man, your old man, your old sinful nature in Adam, died with him. So this verse defines what it means to be a Christian. And it doesn't get any more personal than this. This is where the facts come home to us, where they touch our very existence and they transform everything about us. You have been crucified with Christ. And in Galatians, Paul has been showing his readers only two ways to live. Only two ways to live. You can live according to the law, trying to keep the law, live to the law, try to gain righteousness of yourself, all of that. Or you can live according to God. Paul is saying this, if I can paraphrase it and put a couple things together here. That means you've also risen with Christ. It's no longer you who live. It's Christ living in you. The life you live now, you live not according under the law. That's, that's all dead and gone. But you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. What does it mean I've been crucified with Christ? Exactly what it says. When he died, I died. The reason that God can justify the one who has faith in Jesus Christ is because Jesus paid in full the penalty for the believer's sins. We always need to hammer this fact home, this truth home. On the cross, Jesus was punished for all the sins of all the people through all of human history who would ever believe. When he died, I was crucified there. When you died, you were crucified there. When he rose, I rose with him. And we saw that last week in, in Romans chapter 6 in the, the picture that water baptism portrays. Baptized or immersed into his death, immersed into his resurrection, and walking in newness of life. I'm not the man I used to be says Paul. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What a statement. We have perfect union with Christ. Paul is saying, I'm not the old me. I don't live in a relationship to the law. I live in a relationship to Christ through faith. I put all my trust in him. I seek to please him, to love him, to honor him, to worship him. And then that translates into true obedience to God's law, because it's not external, it's not ceremonial, but it's moral, it's spiritual, and it's done out of a love for God. This is the clearest, simplest definition of what it means to be a Christian. This is it. It's not you anymore. It's Christ in you. It's not you anymore. It's Christ in you. You have become one with him. In fact, Paul said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. When you receive Christ, you are one with him. Over and over again, Paul says in his letters, in Christ. We're in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And then he flips it over and says, Christ in us, Christ in us, Christ in us. Paul would say, I don't know where I end and Christ begins. I don't live by law, so don't take me back into that. I live by love. I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is an incredible, personal, hit-at-home-in-the-heart truth. The moment you believe, 
By a divine miracle, you have been crucified with Christ. The law's demands against us for all the violations, every sin, every dumb little mistake, every word that we said that was wrong, it's all satisfied. It has no more hold on us. Self dies. The dominating power of the old nature is broken. I live, yet not I. It's a transformed I instead of a sinner with a totally depraved nature attempting to earn acceptance with God by works. I am now a saint. We're all saints because saint means holy one. And Paul is very clear on that, that we're all saints. Saints is not just somebody over there somehow that did some good things and gets elevated to a saint. We are all God's holy ones in Christ Jesus, accepted, beloved, with Christ living in me, his life living through me. So fact number four, what difference does it make that Christ rose from the grave? The fourth fact is we shall rise like he rose and live with him forever. For this fact, we go back to Romans chapter 6, verse 5. Sixth chapter, the fifth verse. For if we have become unit, united with him in the likeness of his death, and we've determined that, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul is saying that one must necessarily follow the other. If we become united with Christ in his death, if we've been crucified with Christ, then certainly, for sure, without a doubt, fact, we shall be united with him in his resurrection. As he was raised victor over death, so also we are set free from the bondage of sin. Death precedes life in the realm of the Spirit. Since we are one with him by sharing in his death, we shall be one with him in sharing in his resurrection. New life in Christ follows death to sin as certainly as Christ's resurrection followed his crucifixion. It speaks of a whole new way of life, that after having been crucified with Christ, but it also reminds us that in the same way that Jesus rose from the grave, we will one day rise like he rose and live with him forever. So turn once again to the 15th chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians because we, we end with this. The 15th chapter, this time at the, the 50th verse, page 1411. What is the significance of the fact that we will rise from the grave as Christ rose from the dead? I don't let a funeral service or a graveside service go by without reading these words from, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I like the way that the Chuck Swindoll handles these verses. He says that when the family and the friends are gathered at the grave and they're standing around the grave, he, he pauses and says to them, you're standing on resurrection ground. Oh. <laughs> People get a little uncomfortable with that because the reality hits them that one day these graves are going to open. The dead in Christ shall rise first. And we will always be together with the Lord. And then he says, he reads at verse 50 of the 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. That, doesn't mean we, that means we will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Father, I, I thank you so much that the Apostle Paul wrote those words because for me, they're beyond words. What a wonderful, wonderful promise of what it means to be raised with Christ, not only in walking in newness of life, but one day we will be raised with him. We will receive a glorified body that is in the likeness of his where flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, but in our glorified bodies, we will enjoy the wonders and the awesomeness and the glory of our eternal home forever. All because Jesus died for us and he rose again. Father, for this, we give you thanks. Amen.